welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. So whether you are pouring yourself a cup of tea and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. This episode is from an evening conversation we hosted on February 24th of 2016 at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. with N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes. What you'll hear are the remarks that they each gave on the good news and the good life. The link to hear the full conversation can be found in our show notes and on our website at www.ttf.org. It's been said that the great questions of the humanities essentially boil down to just three. What is a good person? What is the good life? And what is the just society? In their remarks and conversation tonight, our speakers will essentially try to tackle all of these questions. By looking at the relevance of the good news or the gospel to an understanding of what the good life is, means, and requires. They'll also argue that the good news truly is news, ground-shaking, world-altering, paradigm-shattering, with implications for our time and indeed all time, and that reading this news wisely is a key to understanding where we are, what we are here for, and where we are headed. Richard Hayes and N.T. Wright, or Tom, as he is known to his friends, have been friends and co-laborers in the field of New Testament studies for over 30 years. They share a passionate commitment to the task of close and contextualized reading of scripture. And unlike many of their colleagues in theological studies, they have developed and defended a big picture account of the theological coherence of all of the Christian Bible. Moreover, they each bring rich literary sensibilities to their interpretations of text. But like most scholarly friends, they do have points of thoughtful disagreement as well. Where Tom has sought to develop a historical account of Jesus, emphasizing his setting within first century Judaism, Richard has more strongly emphasized a literary critical approach to knowing Jesus as he is portrayed in the gospel narratives and interpreted through the church's traditions and creeds. Which leads us to the question, Will such differing approaches produce significant differences in their understanding of the good news that Jesus taught and its implications and impact? Or will these two separate roads converge in a common understanding of what the good news is and what it means for human flourishing now and in the future? Such questions promise to produce a fascinating and provocative conversation and it is hard to imagine two more expert or eloquent discussants than N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes. We are delighted that they have both joined us tonight to discuss the good news and the good life. Tom? 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. When Jesus began his public career, he claimed to be announcing good news. Many Christians today, I find, have not really reflected on what that means, either what news itself actually is or what Jesus' good news might have been. Richard and I rather wanted to call this event Reading the News with Jesus, since, despite some disagreement on details, as biblical scholars committed to the life of the church, we both want to hold together the two things reflected in that title. First, we must constantly refresh our vision of what Jesus himself meant when he spoke about good news. And this is why history matters, not to invent a new Jesus, but precisely to stop ourselves inventing a new one by forgetting or distorting or ignoring what his original good news actually was. And at the same time, second, as Christians, we are called to look at today's world with spirit-led and Jesus-focused eyes, to be reading the news with Jesus in the sense of looking at current events and asking the question, what would Jesus say about this? And hence, what should we, his followers, be saying and doing about it? And that gives you the framework for what we want to do tonight, however briefly, to read in the four Gospels what Jesus' own good news was and to try in the light of that to glimpse something of a Jesus-shaped vision of a good life in and for today's and tomorrow's world. So first, Jesus' own good news. What is news exactly? Many people, including many Christians, assume that Jesus came to give advice, to tell people how to live, how to go to heaven, how to pray, how to establish a personal relationship with God. Some people talk as if Jesus came to found a new religion. Now, there are grains of truth in all that but they all miss the central point, the news itself. There's all the difference in the world between news and advice. And the point about news is that something is happening as a result of which everything's now going to be different. The baby has been born safely. Good news. The surgery has been successful. Wonderful news. The student has won the scholarship. A whole new world is opening up. Something has happened which unveils a new future and which then generates an interim time between the event itself and that ultimate future. The baby will be taken home and will grow up. The patient is still weak but will convalesce and return to normal. The pupil must now prepare for an exciting academic career and so on. News generates a new moment of time. Now, there's a word of warning here. Christians today are easily conned by the rhetoric of the Enlightenment according to which nothing really changed with Jesus, except for a new possibility of a present spirituality and an ultimate disembodied salvation. The world stayed much the same. That is a lie. Too many Christians have colluded with it. If you want an interesting read on this, read John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man?, remarkable exposition of what the church has done through the centuries precisely because everything in fact changed with Jesus. So what news was Jesus announcing? The news is rooted in Israel's scriptures, not least in Isaiah 40 to 55, and the good news there and in subsequent Jewish expectation, particularly in Daniel, is that Israel's God, Yahweh, is at last taking his power and reigning. God is becoming king. 
The Psalms speak of this. Heaven and earth rejoice because Yahweh is claiming his throne, reigning over the nations, doing justice and mercy. It is crystal clear in Isaiah 52. God will overthrow the pagans and rescue his people. He will return to Jerusalem in person and in power to fill the temple with his glory. This is then filled out in Daniel in large-scale expansions of Psalm 2. The nations will rage, but Israel's God will take charge and will install his appointed son as the world's rightful Lord, and through him he will call the nations to account. Plenty of Jews in Jesus' day were longing for this to happen. There was no one-size-fits-all pattern of expectation, but rather a set of swirling possibilities, always with the scriptural narrative reaching its climax. The long story would arrive at its goal. The powers of the world would be overcome, and God would take charge of the world in a whole new way. And Jesus' message of good news was that precisely this was now taking place. When he healed people, this was what it meant. God was taking charge in a new way. When he celebrated with the down and outs and the ne'er-do-wells, this was what it meant. This your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Resurrection is happening under your noses, even if you can't see it. That's why Jesus spoke of the renewed heart, promised in scripture, and now it seems available because he was there. This is why Jesus called 12 special followers, signaling that God was renewing his people Israel. This is why he challenged the rich and the powerful and constantly focused on the poor. God was putting the world the right way up at last. And this was in particular why Jesus told parables. Because his message again and again was, the kingdom of God is arriving, but it's not like you thought it was going to be. The parables are redefining the kingdom as only stories can, inviting Jesus' hearers into a new way of understanding Israel's ancient story and its sudden fulfillment. But here we have a particular problem. Modern Western Christians, on being told that Jesus redefined Jewish expectations, usually assume that this means he was rejecting political or this-worldly Jewish meanings and offering spiritual or heavenly ones instead. This is simply wrong. When Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, the Greek makes it clear that he means that his kingdom is not from this world, ektu kosmututu. The kingdom has its origin elsewhere, but its destination is precisely for this world. That's why the Lord's Prayer prays, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. But how? Jesus' answer, the, the key to the good news and the good life, is the radical redefinition of power itself. The rulers of this world, he said, get what they want by bullying people and tyrannizing them. But he says, we're going to do it the other way. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus drew together kingdom texts from Isaiah and Daniel and elsewhere, not to say that power was irrelevant or that the only thing that mattered was what would happen to you after you died, something he hardly ever mentioned, by the way, but to insist that the kingdom would come through the all-conquering power of self-giving love. 
The way the Gospels tell the story and the way Jesus himself conceived of this kingdom movement, it was all pointing to the cross. The kingdom means what it means in the light of the cross, and conversely, Jesus' crucifixion means what it means because it is the ultimate kingdom moment. It's the moment when Israel's God, having returned in person, defeats the powers of darkness and launches upon the world the new way of being human. Jesus chose Passover as the key moment to declare in symbol and parable that the temple was now redundant, that his followers were the spearhead of the rescued people of God, and that his own death would deal with Israel's ancient sins and thus undo their elongated exile once and for all. Jesus would give himself as the ransom for many. And you can see him doing it throughout his public career and then supremely on the cross so that by dealing with sin, he robs the unseen satanic powers of their power. And the resurrection then follows because death itself has been defeated, because sin itself has been defeated, which is why the resurrection is the launching of the new creation. This is the good news, the news which Jesus announced, the news which the four Gospels are telling us about Jesus. And don't be fooled by the sneer of the skeptic who says that, well, Jesus spoke about God, but then the church spoke about Jesus, as though the church is just making up a bit of Christology to fill a gap. No, the whole point is that Jesus was telling stories about what Israel's God was doing in order to explain what he himself was doing. At the heart of Jesus' vision was the healing of creation, flooding the world with justice and joy as the waters cover the sea. And at the heart of Jesus' vocation was the faith awareness that he was himself embodying the returning and reigning God of whom he spoke. But again, there's a problem for us today. We've grown up under the shadow of 18th century skeptics who say that, well, Jesus wasn't divine and that there isn't a life after death. And so we have been lured into the trap of supposing that the Gospels were written, A, to prove that Jesus was divine, and B, to prove that he is leading the way to an otherworldly life after death. Not so. The Gospels presuppose that Jesus is embodying Israel's God, returning in strange, self-giving power. That is the key in which the music is written, but it isn't the tune that's being played. The tune itself is that in and through Jesus, the one true God is becoming king on earth as in heaven. The ultimate life after death is not a platonic, disembodied immortality, but resurrection life in God's new creation. And that new world began when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. That's the good news. Something happened then as a result of which the world is a different place. And we are summoned not just to enjoy its benefits, but to take up our own vocations as new creation people, as Sermon on the Mount people, as spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers, bringing his kingdom into reality in our world. 
as I say that, one caution before we can proceed. God remains sovereign over the kingdom. God builds God's kingdom in God's way. We don't build the kingdom by what we do here and now. But don't let that rob you of the New Testament vocation. We are called to build for the kingdom, to do things here and now, which by the Spirit participate in the work of new creation as genuine signs and foretastes of God's new world, as true signposts, as advanced symbols of the kingdom which God himself will one day make. That's where the sacraments come in. That's where feeding the hungry and welcoming the stranger come in. This is where justice and mercy locally and globally come in. This is the good life. This is the formation of new creation people. And this is where the church in the Acts of the Apostles comes in. When the disciples asked Jesus whether this was the time for him to restore the kingdom to Israel, his answer, just as in the parables, was, yes, but not in the way you think. You will receive the Spirit's power, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The kingdom which was decisively inaugurated in Jesus must be taken forward with the same methods of prayer and love and the word of God into all the world. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. We Western Christians are usually quite comfortable about thinking that Jesus has all authority in heaven. We've hardly begun to think about what it might mean that he has all authority on earth. So where might this take us for today? As we think about this Jesus and then about today's news and what our good life might look like in that context, there are two obvious mistakes to avoid. On the one hand, it won't do to say that, well, we're going off to heaven quite soon, so today's news doesn't really matter. It's just sort of surface noise and irrelevant. It won't do to say that. On the other hand, nor will it do to say that, well, Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation give us a 21st century roadmap for end time events in the Middle East, and all we've got to do is decode the symbols and wait for Armageddon or the rapture. <laughs> Those two views often reinforce one another. But the genuine Christian vocation is quite different. Jesus urged his contemporaries to read the signs of the times, to think wisely about the state of the world and what God's kingdom would mean. And we must do the same. In particular, we must recognize that all human systems of government, including the various types of democracy, stand under God's judgment and mercy. God is in charge through Jesus, but here's the point which we often get wrong. God always wanted to run the world through image-bearing human beings, whether or not they acknowledge him. It's the foundation of a Christian political theology. God wants there to be human authorities because anarchy is always even worse than tyranny. But what matters is not whether somebody has achieved a majority vote in whatever system and by whatever means, what matters is what they then do when they're in office. The ancient Greeks and Romans often put public officials on trial at the end of their term because they knew that an election wasn't enough. It didn't validate everything this person would subsequently do. Doing justice and mercy in office is what counts. And this is where the calling of the church comes in. It isn't enough simply to talk of faithful presence, as my good friend James Davison Hunter has done. Faithful presence is vital, and James is its most eloquent exponent that I know. 
It's non-negotiable, but it's just the first step. And I've said this to him, it's a conversation we have. Jesus said, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the way the Spirit will do that is through the witness of the church. Here we have a problem. Because the media have taken that task to themselves, the task of holding governments to account. And they warn the church off the patch because they're now claiming it as their own. But those who follow Jesus must stand on that patch, however uncomfortably, and learn again, painfully as it may be, to speak the truth to power. Jesus' conversation with Pontius Pilate in John 18 and 19, which focuses on kingdom and truth and power, that must be our model in whatever system we live. Adapting our methods, though not our ultimate message, to the different situations we face. This applies, as you know, in a thousand different ways. Christians have, in fact, been doing all this since the beginning, caring for the poor and the sick, advancing education, reminding rulers of their proper tasks. That's often happened under the radar, but it has transformed the world. Don't be fooled by the 18th century rhetoric according to which Constantine falsified the original message. I know it's very easy in your beloved great country to imagine that getting rid of kings like George III was the thing you had to do. Um, <laughs> No, Jesus really did transform the world. But Jesus did that not by sending in the tanks, but by sending in the meek, the justice-hungry people, the peacemakers, and so on. That's how it's done. Anyway, perhaps the most urgent need right now, I'm nearly finished, is to recognize the folly of Western politicians and media when faced with the so-called Arab Spring four or five years ago. We were simply parroting the normal Western narrative. Get rid of tyrants and peace, love and liberal democracy and perhaps flower power will spring up automatically. So we helped them get rid of a few tyrants and now we are reaping the whirlwind. And we can't look on at the refugees washing up on our shores and say it was all their own fault. It wasn't. It was partly, not totally, but partly our fault. We were following a false, idolatrous narrative. We urgently need to read the news with Jesus, to have our characters, our judgments, our thinking and speaking formed and transformed by his good news. And this is where, to return to our title, the good news generates and sustains the good life. We are to read the news with the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, the Jesus who fed the hungry, the Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many, and not to forget, the Jesus who, as a helpless infant, was himself an asylum seeker, a fugitive from tyranny, the incarnate son carrying the love of God even then into the places where the world was in pain. As Jesus himself was fond of saying, if you have ears, then hear. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for that eloquent word. Our topic tonight is a crucial one at this moment in history. Here in the US, we find ourselves in a time when the daily news conveys anxiety, anger, and most particularly confusion about Christian identity and mission. And so the time is right to consider afresh the news that Jesus brought. Four score 
years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was engaged in a struggle to reassert the message of the gospel against powerful political forces in Germany, forces that were seeking to co-opt and corrupt the message of the church. He published a meditative manifesto entitled Nachfolge, first translated into English as The Cost of Discipleship. In 2001, a new translation appeared under a simpler title that corresponds exactly to the original German, simply Discipleship. On the first page of the preface, here's what Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, in times of church renewal, Holy Scripture naturally becomes richer in content for us. Behind the daily catchwords and battle cries needed in the church struggle, a more intense questioning search arises for the one who is our sole concern, for Jesus himself. What did Jesus want to say to us? What does he want from us today? How does he help us to be faithful Christians today? End quote. That's the concern that Tom Wright and I bring to you tonight. We want to begin by asking what it was that Jesus wanted to say to us when he spoke as he did continually of the kingdom of God. And we will then consider what he wants from us today and how we can be faithful to God's purposes in the world in our time. Tom and I are in very substantial agreement about the answers to these questions, and he has brilliantly sketched the big canvas. My task now is to focus in more closely on just a few points. So first, the kingdom of God, what did Jesus say? I want to underscore something that Tom said in passing, which is that the coming kingdom is God's action. The good news that Jesus brought was not, first of all, a new moral teaching about what we should do. Rather, it was startling news about something God was doing. God was bringing the long story of Israel to its climax. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God was the consummation of Israel's hopes. In chapter 63 of the book of Isaiah, the prophet laments that God's people have strayed from God's ways and no longer call on his name. And so God has hidden his face from them. Here is Isaiah's gloomy diagnosis. We have long been like those whom you do not rule. Notice the importance of this verb, to rule. We are like those who, over whom you do not rule. Like those not called by your name. And so the prophet cries out at the beginning of Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. Hundreds of years later, the opening of the Gospel of Mark narrates God's answer to that prayer. At the baptism of Jesus, the heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends, and Jesus is proclaimed as God's Son, the Anointed One who will assume the kingship of Israel and proclaim that God does indeed rule, for the kingdom of God has come near. Consequently, Jesus declares, it is time to repent and time to trust in the great glad news that he is bringing. This is not an otherworldly message. Indeed, 
Instead, it's a message that announces God's kingdom is coming on earth as in heaven. It's not a story about how we get up to heaven. It's a story about God's tearing open the heavens and coming down. Jesus proclaims that God's kingdom is breaking into this world and transforming it. But that transformation entails startling reversals. The inbreaking kingdom casts a flash of illumination that causes us to reassess and reevaluate everything we thought we knew. Everything is changed because Jesus, as the embodiment of God in this world, does not come with an army to crush his enemies or to bomb them into submission. Instead, he comes to call everyone to metanoia, repentance. The Greek word means a change of mind. So a message of reversal is deeply woven into Jesus' announcement of the good news. Jesus' mother, Mary, already foresaw it while he was still in her womb. She sang joyfully, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. She sounds a bit like someone who might vote for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and years later, when Jesus inaugurated his public preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, he confirmed his mother's spirit-inspired intuition by reading from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now Jesus' way of bringing this good news was so unexpected that it has triggered doubts continually from his day until the present time. One of the first doubters was John the Baptist, who had initially pointed to Jesus as the one who was the coming deliverer, right? But as Jesus walked about Galilee, healing the sick, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, and telling paradoxical parables about the kingdom, John, who, by the way, is languishing in prison while this is going on, became impatient and disturbed, and he had hoped for some more politically effective action than he was seeing. And so he sent messengers to Jesus to ask, are you the coming one, or should we be looking for someone else? Are you really the king we've been hoping for? And Jesus replied by echoing Isaiah yet again, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. He's alluding here to Isaiah 35. Do we have ears to hear? Jesus is saying that the heavenly kingdom comes with deeds of love and mercy, not with clashing swords. And of course, the ultimate deed of love and mercy was Jesus' self-giving on the cross. Again, hardly the sort of kingly act that John was expecting. But does that mean that when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he envisioned an alternative spiritual realm 
that simply left the world's power structures intact. The Gospels have often been read that way, but this is a misreading. I want to focus on just one key text, the story in which Jesus is asked whether paying taxes to Caesar is lawful. There's a long history of Christian interpretation that reads Jesus' answer to that question as authorizing a two kingdoms schema in which Caesar's authority over political and commercial matters is acknowledged, while that which belongs to God is cordoned off into a private spiritual realm. But that interpretation, frankly, fails to make sense of the text. It's an interpretation you can have only if you read Jesus' response as a kind of soundbite detached from the story. But the question about paying taxes, we have to read the narrative, is posed by an unlikely alliance of Jesus' enemies. It's a trap. The question seeks to force Jesus either to declare rebellion against Rome or to discredit himself in the eyes of the discontented people by endorsing a continued passive acquiescence in uh, Roman hegemony. Jesus then gives an enigmatic answer. Give back to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give back to God the things that belong to God. Now, if that response means simply, as it has often been understood, yes, go ahead, pay the tax, if that's all it means, then you see Jesus has fallen into the trap. He's fallen into one side of the trap they're setting for him, the quietest collaborationist side. But in fact, however, Jesus' interlocutors, far from gleefully celebrating that they've caught him out and trapped him in his words, are, it says, utterly amazed by his answer. Why are they amazed? Because his answer is a riddle which throws the task of discernment back upon the listeners. He's forcing them to offer a judgment about what does in fact belong to God. And here's the key to understanding the passage when we read the full story. Instead of immediately answering the question, Jesus first demands that the questioners bring him a denarius. On the face of this Roman coin, there was a graven image of the emperor accompanied by these words, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And so Jesus puts a question to them, whose image is this? The Greek word is akon, whose image is this? And whose inscription? And only after they've given the obvious answer does Jesus spring his own trap back on them, he declares that this idolatrous object with Caesar's akon on it should be summarily returned to its owner while the things that belong to God should be truly given back to him. But then what does belong to God? The full force of Jesus' reply sinks in for us only when we read backwards and recognize that Jesus' question, whose acon is this, echoes the creation story of Genesis, where we learn that God created human beings according to his own acon, according to his own image. With this echo in our ears, we will understand Jesus' answer very differently. It summons all who hear this imperative to give back our whole created selves, our whole selves, fully to the one whose image we bear. 
That's why Jesus' answer astonishes his questioners. But by recalling the Genesis creation story, it reminds us not only that everything belongs to God, the creator, but that human beings in particular who are made in his image belong to him, and therefore not to Caesar. If God is king, he is king over the whole world, and the coming kingdom of God makes a claim on the wholeness of our lives. So let's turn our attention to the wholeness of our lives. As did Bonhoeffer, we press on to ask all too briefly a second question, what does Jesus want from us today and how does he help us to be faithful Christians today? Notice that question makes sense if and only if the message of the resurrection of Jesus is true. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we might now read his teachings with historical curiosity, seeing him as one more idealistic visionary who is crushed under the wheel of history. His brutal death at the hands of Roman authorities would in fact disconfirm his grand hope for the coming of God's kingdom on earth. But in fact, if Jesus was raised from the dead, his message of good news is validated. He himself is shown to have conquered death and the violent powers that claim to rule the world. The resurrection confirms that he is the one to whom ultimately every knee shall bow. Only because he does in fact live and reign, does it make sense for Bonhoeffer to ask what Jesus wants today and how he helps us today. Notice that the verbs are in the present tense. Bonhoeffer's not asking what the late departed Jesus of blessed memory would have wanted if only he were still alive now. He's asking what the living Lord of the world wants and how he will help us to follow him and embody the fullness of the life that he proclaimed. Time is short, so I focus on just one last text, this time from the Acts of the Apostles. As the earliest followers of Jesus began living out Jesus' kingdom message, they encountered resistance, and some of their leaders were arrested by the authorities as dangerous troublemakers. I urge you to reread the full account of Acts 4, of how Peter and John were arrested and subsequently released, and how the Jerusalem church celebrated their release with a room-rocking worship service in which they sang Psalm 2 to celebrate the triumph of the Lord and his Messiah over the feckless rulers and authorities of this age. And the very next thing we find in the text is Luke's summary then of how the early church in Jerusalem was seeking to respond to the good news of the kingdom and Jesus' triumph over the rulers of this age. Here's what Luke writes. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. Most English translations don't translate that conjunction, but it's right there in the Greek. It's a gar. It's very clear. Great grace was upon them all. Why? For there was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned houses or lands, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. End quote. Now, I want you to notice just three things about this passage. First, 
The community's life together is the embodiment of the presence of God's kingdom. The community itself embodies God's triumph over the false powers and idols of the present age by the form of their life together. Second, the most salient feature of that life together is that the church becomes a community in which there is no needy person among them. That is to say, reading backwards once again, the church fulfills God's commandment to Israel in Deuteronomy 15, quote, if there is anyone among you in need, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8. So what does Jesus want from us today? He wants us, like the church in Jerusalem, to embody a faithful and imaginative response to God's commandment to Israel to share with the poor and needy in our midst. And the third thing I want you to notice is that the community's practice of sharing their goods with the poor is the evidence. It is the evidence that great grace was upon them all. It is the empirical practice, the sharing of goods is the empirical practice that confirms the truth of the apostolic testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Again, quoting the text, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. Now notice, I want you to notice carefully that what we're talking about here in Acts 4 is not a set of rules or commandments about what the church must do. It's a story. It's a narrative that paints a joyful picture of how the church responded to the good news that Jesus proclaimed and that was embodied in his resurrection. If we want to know what Jesus wants of us today, it seems to me this picture interrogates us. It's a picture that leaves us with a question. What could we do to reshape the life of our communities in such a way that they bear witness to the great grace that is upon us? What must we do in our time to shape the life of our communities in such a way that the world can actually see the power of the resurrection at work? The more fully we live into answering that question, the more we will come to know the good life. And the good life is, of course, an ambiguous phrase in and of itself, right? It can mean the life of ease. Or it could mean the good life in the sense of the life that is rightly ordered towards God's purpose for us as human beings. The good life that was promised in the good news that Jesus proclaimed. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversation.